Good morning. Welcome to the Cowries and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China-Africa podcast. Broadcasting from the heart of Global China-Africa Research, Washington, D.C., I am your host, Winslow Robertson, and I'll be joined by the adventurous Dr. Nkemjika Kalu. Dr. Kalu, how was your party? Any stories you would like to share? Well, a farewell party can be very, very sad, but I think that it was actually really nice and just a great opportunity to um, to see some friends finally before leaving D.C. for Nigeria, my new adventure that awaits. Um, we had so much snow last week, though. It was so hard for people to get out, but a few people were able to make it, and that was such a good time. We missed you. Well, I missed you at the party. I missed you, too. I, she, Dr. Kalu had a, a lovely going-away party that... Unfortunately, the gods conspired to snow out, and I was a little ill that day, so I couldn't quite make it. But, but I heard, uh, as you told me, some a lot of people came. Did you guys sing any songs of regret and farewell? There was no singing. Lots of laughing and joke telling, but no singing. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm very sorry. I I couldn't make it, but we will do something this week. Sounds good. All right, today's episode is brought to you by our two sponsors, African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nina Orduro, seeks to contact development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. The Africa Daily is an online communications platform that provides the most up-to-date journalistic and academic information on China-Africa relations. The forum incorporated in the website also facilitates the cultural and informational exchanges among the diaspora communities in major Chinese and African cities. We are pretty stoked to have Miss Antonia Akedinor. If I did not pronounce that right, I'm sorry, I should have actually practiced pronouncing that. How do you pronounce your name? Oh, okay, it used to be... Antonia Aquileno, but uh, now it's Antonia Bamidele. Antonia Baladele? Bamidele. Bandele. Yeah, but Antonia Aquileno is the one I've been using for my work, so it's fine. <laughs> no no hyphenated name? Uh, well, we're still working on that. I don't know if I should go for the hyphen. I, well, I'm just like a week old. <laughs> So uh, Antonia just got married, and, and she's doing her first post-marriage podcast. So congratulations! Thank you very much, Miss uh, Miss Baladele Bandele. Sorry, Miss Bandele. Obtain- Bandele. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you do you want to read the introduction instead of me? I think, I think you should just use Akidendo. I think that's uh, if that would be easier because of my, <laughs> my work. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Ms. Akadeno obtained yeah. her first degree at the University of Abuja, Nigeria in 2006, and her MA in 2012 at the University of Botswana, and the uh, thesis was titled, A Study in the Conversational Strategies Employed by Chinese Investors, Their Employees, and Customers in Botswana. She has interest in China and other foreign countries' sociolinguistics and labor relations with Africa. Antonia, welcome to the pod. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to have to be on air. And you are in uh, Bahrain right now, is that correct? Yes. Enjoying myself, quiet environment, but nice. Uh, and how's the weather up there? It's actually cold winter, so um, 
not show the degrees, but very cold outside. Did you pack appropriately, or did your, your new <laughs> husband have to buy a lot of winter clothes for you? Uh, actually, uh, he actually updated me on the weather, and uh, Botswana is actually cold, the, almost the same temperature you have here, so I got used to, you know, I had some leftovers of my winter clothing, so I had to just, you know, pack them back into my bag, and <laughs> fine. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad to hear it. You know, we we tried to schedule last week for the pod, but you had to attend your wedding, obviously. I, you're on honeymoon, is that correct? Uh, yes, because I'm officially taking my leave off work, so I'm actually resting and um, doing my work, you know, trying to come up with, um, you know, wife rules and all that, so it's <laughs> quite interesting. <laughs> well, that's, yeah. that's fantastic. Uh, what are you planning on working on when when you when you get back into the the swing of things? I have um, a project. I guess uh, I still have a, uh, for the Russian conference the African is the yeah the the, yeah. the annual um, Africa conference for the Russian Social Science yeah. Academy in May. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I have some few things to kind of put together for that. So I didn't want to get myself distracted with the wedding plans and all that. So I think I, I'll be able to put up one or two things when I get back. Well, to focus on some writing, I have a project with ILO, International Legal Organization, which I spoke on last year, December, at Addis Ababa. So it's on um, foreign migrants in African societies. I'm writing a chapter for their centenary book. So that's something that they've given me a year to work on, which is a, a chapter which I have to really build on for that. Wow, geez, geez Louise. Sounds like you're going to be a very busy lady. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Miss uh, Akadinor just had her article, Code Switching in the Conversations of the Chinese trading community in Africa, the case of Botswana, published last December in the journal English Today. So I thought the title was really interesting, especially with my rather shallow knowledge of code switching in the U.S. context. And Cowries and Rice wanted to have her on the show to discuss her article and her research. So, uh, Ms. Akadinor, Antonia, glad to have you on the pod. Thank you once again. You're welcome. Be before we get into the article, could you tell us about how you got into the fields of uh, sociolinguistics? I did English language for my first degree. And my master's program, I, did a, I focused my major in English and linguistics. So that's actually how I started a long chain of sociolinguistics. And uh, my relationship with China Africa actually was to look at sociolinguistic issues emerging from the relationship. Could, could you let me know what is sociolinguistics? I'm not totally sure what that means. Okay. Uh, sociolinguistics has to do with the study of uh, language, society, how you study language, study of language in a society. So you're looking at not just how people relate, but also the language in how language is used in the society. And so using that framework, you started looking at, at China-Africa stuff. What what was the first thing that piqued your interest to apply sociolinguistics to the current China-Africa relationship? Um, I actually read some um, some articles before I focused on China-Africa on um, 
the relationship, first of all, I wanted to understand what this, uh, when it came out, you know, there was just so much information coming out there on government-to-government -government relationship with China. And what caught my attention was later I got to hear from different presidents talking about building, you know, um, there are a lot of miscommunication, trying to work on cultural exchanges, win-win, and all the focus um, outline on China-Africa. So I looked at it like, if there's so much issues, there's so much development, so much relationship that want to come out between China and Africa, there has to be something, there has to be a meeting point. And um, one of the key meeting points I could pick up was language. And most of the time when you have the, the maybe presidents talking about China and Africa or during their FOCAC meeting, they will always mention that the Chinese should try and build on their language relationship with Africans. And that was actually what got my interest and I thought of doing that for my master's thesis. Perfect. That's going to be an issue that's probably going to stay in the China-Africa headlines for, for a while. I think it's really fascinating looking at the understanding of the language because that's, I mean, at, at the core, communication is what will be a major driver, what is a major driver between global Africa, well, China-Africa relations. One of, the, one of the tools for social linguistics, especially in such diverse language, I guess, interactions, is code switching. Can you describe a little bit better what code switching is and how and the role that it plays in your article? Okay, um, code switching, different authors actually just uh, explain code switching, but I'll just pick one or pick some together. We say that code switching is the ability of bilingual or multilingual speakers to use more than one language within a communicative event, which can be in one and the same utterance or discourse which happened to Ruben and Jean 2008 and Helen 1999. It says that code switching is for an individual to be able to use one and more, um, more than one language to communicate. It may not, you don't have to know all the languages in that language code, but all the words in that language code where you can actually be able to mix, it's more like a mixing, <laughs> language mixing. You have that in linguistics and it's a language mixing, so you have to mix one or two words together in order to, to aid communication. So for my article, I got so interested in using code switching because of my curiosity to find out how uh, Chinese and Africans are able to communicate on one-on-one -on -one basis, not really focusing on the government-to-government -government, um, relationship, but more of individual relationship. And I found that for every relationship to blossom, you have to have a, way, a common point of meeting and language is vital language agreement people can agree on language people can disagree on language communication is very important so that actually made me look at how are these chinese traders or chinese in general but specifically traders are able to communicate are able to express themselves to their employees and also to their customers who come to their shop to buy their products that was what fascinated me to go on this research Initially, people, I had comments like, they don't talk, <laughs> the Chinese don't say anything, so you wouldn't expect anybody to tell you anything. But surprisingly, I found out that a lot of them do speak, not just words, but they're able to speak in local languages. They might not have the full vocabulary, but they're able to pick one or two words. They know the basic communication words they need for their business, which also the customers have been able to pick some Chinese words 
for their business in order for them to be able to buy and to get the product or to get better bargain. Yeah, so those are some of the things that actually caught my interest and in, um, to see how they're able to grassroots communication between China, Chinese and, uh, and Africans. And you have some, some Chinese background, right? You, you, you speak some Mandarin, correct? Yeah, I do. I was given the opportunity to learn Chinese at the Confucius Institute at, at the University of Botswana when I, my thesis was approved for, 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 for that, you know, for me to go ahead to do the work, to do the project. So I was sponsored by the Confucius Institute to learn Chinese. Funny enough, I got, I was the best learner for my level. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I don't think about words like uh, Ni Hao, Ni Hao Ma, Sai Jen. <laughs> yeah, it's quite interesting. Although I still hope to for that, if I have opportunity to for that, I will not. Well, I didn't. Didn't Nigeria announce that like Chinese is going to be one of the official, one of like the school languages like last year? So I'm sure if you're if you're going to be in Nigeria for a while, you you will get opportunities to learn it. Yeah, there are actually some, like my state were actually thinking of introducing a conscious institute there, but uh, well, should I say time now? <laughs> Not so much on my side there. But um, I was raising that up to have a conscious institute sometime in Edo State, where people can also get to learn Chinese. But right now, I think we have two in University of Lagos and one at University of Nigeria Asuka. Those are the places where I can I can really remember of uh, Confucius Centers Institute there. But uh, uh, about the government, the Nigerian government introducing it in the school curriculum, I know some schools actually have Chinese as an international language, like in Botswana, which I'm sure of. They have um, they studied Chinese as uh, a foreign language alongside French, so you have that also as an international language. And UB has a University of Botswana has a Chinese studies department, so maybe with time Nigeria will have all that. <laughs> Fantastic. Let, let's get into your study. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong, but your article had you look at a random sampling of language interactions amongst 40 Chinese traders out of 2,000 operating in Botswana, uh, which you used eight recordings for your study. Could you? Talk about what you found and and how you set up this research. Okay, um, this particular story that I used for my work was is actually um, a section for my thesis. So I had a, well, my thesis is quite bulky, but I was able to get a part out of it because of the regulations for publishing. So I was trying to streamline it to just few pages. Nevertheless. Um, I looked at, when I mentioned 2000, about 2000 Chinese operating in Botswana, they cut across diverse fields, apart from those that are selling um, goods and services like Chinese goods and all that. You have those also running the restaurants operating in Botswana, who are also, you know, business-oriented people. And um, most of the time, you hardly find a Chinese person just coming alone all the way from China to Africa. They either come with family and the family also support their businesses. So you find a Chinese man having a shop, but at the end of the day, you might not even see him at the shop. You will see his wife or his mom or his sister or someone else who is managing the shop. So my study for this work was in Kaburani, the capital of Botswana. And uh, 
there are actually quite a number of Chinese outlets, but because of the study, I had to streamline it to 40. And 40 in the sense that each shop that I visited, there were 40 number, not just the Chinese altogether in the shop and all that, but all different shops across the, the city, across the, the capital. And uh, for the purpose of my study, I had to streamline them to eight in order to have just a, a section on code switching. But I found out that initially they were they weren't uh, open to me. But good, good, you know, I was lucky. I had some background Chinese, which I had to use to really make them feel at home. It's like, okay, I'm just doing this for research, not for anything, not to stick to the government. I'm not, I'm not working for the government. I'm just a student because they always kept asking. But the good thing I had was that my department actually sent me some information and I got a covering letter from the Chinese embassy because they always want to prove to show that you're not coming there to, you know, to arrest them or something. So they had what? Some... <laughs> That's really interesting. Uh, yes. can, can you talk about the mechanics of getting this letter from the yeah. embassy? Like, like, was it, you go to speak to someone, they won't speak to you. You ask your department, what do you do? Your department says, go talk to the Chinese embassy. Like, how, how did this come about? Yeah, the first time I went there, I had to go through my university personal so that they know it's from research. But the university had to give me a cover letter to take to the embassy. The reason is that they believe that if you're coming from the embassy, they have kind of, not so much their backing, but kind of their approval in a way. But uh, I went there, you know, student and all that. So I guess that was the luck I had. And they knew I was learning Chinese already <laughs> at UB. So I guess that actually made me have like um, an opportunity to be able to get information from the embassy on how to 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 carry out my research so they wrote a note for me in chinese not in english this time in chinese stating that um i'm a researcher and i'm just doing it for my research so that actually anytime i go to the shops and i speak a little chinese i just show them the i'll show them the paper and they're like okay okay so what what, what you know <laughs> and then they just open up to me and that's okay, stay somewhere while they continue their business and all that. So I was interfering their conversation with their customers or their staff. So that was how I was able to get my, my, my work and through recorded uh, interviews and uh, note noting as a participant observer also. That's, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, it, can you talk a little about your overall findings or? Uh, for my work, I found out that my my inch my my first of all my focus was that can they really give me the information that I need for my for my work because I had to do a pilot study. Most people felt like this you wouldn't get anything studying Chinese uh, traders. So when I got my first um, outing, I was very curious to find out if I would actually be able to record anything. I thought it's all sign language throughout and no words, but surprisingly, <laughs> there was actually a lot of conversation. Most of the time, the Chinese child would tell me, me, no English, no English, me, no speak, you know, and I'm like, okay, okay, no problem. But in the course of the conversation, since they are, um, it's recorded, natural conversation, they end up speaking different, a lot of words, and they're conversing, they're joking, they're laughing, they're talking. And now, you know, it's really created kind of like, wow, so a lot is actually going on and 
most times we look at it from the shallow point of view and feel like there's no communication going on. But deep down, there's much, so much communication going on between China, Chinese and Africans, which are silent, which people don't talk about, which people don't want to mention, which people feel that it's not necessary or it's not relevant for China-African relations. But those communication, they have a well building relationship. So that was what I found that that was, it was very interesting. <laughs> Well, you have a really significant um, contribution, I think, to our understanding of engagement between China and Africa. And as you pointed out, there's not very much that looks at this aspect of growing communication. How does your research compare to other studies? And is there any literature um, specifically on um, Chinese trainers in Africa or even just other foreigners in Botswana? and code switching between um, the different languages. Could you speak a little bit about that, please? Uh, yes, there have been um, quite a number of uh, research work, not so much, but few research work on uh, China and Africa, yeah, which you will find a lot. And Botswana, just few, because um, when I started my study, I had to check so many materials if I could get something on China and Botswana relations. Most of the time, I could only picture a few, one from the, under the uh, S, uh, Institute in South Africa that um, did a little research in Botswana, and very few people. But general issues, when you look at uh, other groups in Botswana, other uh, language groups like the, um, this is common one, I'm trying to remember because maybe because I've left there for some time now, the Kalagas, yeah. Calendars, they also kind of does another uh, language um, tribe in uh, in Botswana, where they also study like how they relate Sichuana Kalanga languages and all that. But you also find that the the not just in um, there've been co-switching studies across different countries and across different tribes and all that. Even in Nigeria, we also have co-switching studies across different languages in Nigeria. But what actually got my fancy and took the credit of my department when my work was out was that little has really been said about China-African co-switching. How, how come there was not so much information on China and Africa, not just Botswana, but other African countries, how they're able to use language. And that was really something that I felt you know, should be looked at since it's an area that hasn't really been covered or given so much attention. Well, I think let's, one of the things that we've, um, you've pointed out is that um, this, the idea of studying language has not been stressed enough in our understanding of China and China-Africa relations. The other thing that we, we've talked about recently, at least I've started to hear a lot about, is you know, looking at these informal relationships between the Chinese and the Africans especially through these small to medium-sized enterprises in the trade industry. How do Chinese traders fit within the Africa-China relationship from your perspective? Yeah, they're not part of the, our official understanding of China. They're, out of the, they're beyond the purview of the Chinese government and the control of Chinese foreign policy. Um, should they be in the discussion on China-Africa relations or how, you know, how big of a role should they play in that? Yeah, I think definitely they, they actually play um, neutral. You know, when you're talking about China, Africa, people tend to look at it from abstract, like 
oh, there's China, there's African relationship going on somewhere. But people get to feel the relationship and get to relate more with the relationship when they deal with Chinese informally or through any means of communication. That's how they get to know how valuable and how, how progressive the relationship is. If there's no one-on-one -on -one relationship with the Chinese, there's actually, it's just like um, something going on out there people don't get to know. Like um, my experience in Nigeria, when I got back to Nigeria, I was, you know, I really wanted so much information on China, Africa, so I, I, I got to the Chinese embassy in Abuja. Unfortunately, I couldn't get so much, you know, that open opportunity to really get information because I felt like there's a relationship between China and Nigeria, but how come you don't have access to people that are working on this relationship? Are they so obscure or they're so hidden somewhere that you just hear about so many things going on, but people want to know how do these Chinese relate with each other. Apart from the fact that, you know, they're also important because looking at the fact that people deal with them daily. These are, the, these are the people that people deal with, and these are people that cause issues. If, the, if there are issues relating to China and African relations, it's not from the government. You always hear crisis coming from either Chinese migrants having clash with the workers, or you know, like what happened in, in Ghana, or what happened in Zambia, or what happens in, uh, in different parts of Africa where you have either the Chinese workers having problems with the local workers and all that. So those are the silent issues that end up affecting relationship. And people tell you that, no, these Chinese are not, you know, they have different things to talk about. But if the, 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 the Chinese traders are recognized and um, in a way the relationship, it's, they also give them that support that they need. They're able to also speak more about the relationship. They tell the people, uh, for example, media houses, if they want to get information about China and Africa, they hardly, they don't go to the government. If they, fine, they can go, but if they want more concrete information, they go to the local community and ask them, how do you feel about Chinese here? And they tell you that how they feel. And if they have protests, those people that you know go all the way to protest about issues, which end up coming back to the government. So I feel like they might be quiet, they might be on their own, you know, trying to survive on their own, but they have a key role to play in China-African relations. Well, uh, how, how did the, the Chinese traders and the customers of those traders look at the overall China-Africa relationship during the course of your study? Did, did it ever come up where, you know, when, when, when people were buying stuff and they were talking, did they talk about, oh, you know, thank you for coming and helping us, or something along those lines? Yeah, I guess for the traders, they still didn't feel like they're part of the relationship. Because uh, most times I, I actually asked, I, I actually interviewed, when I was asking them some questions about, you know, life in Africa, how they're able to cope, general issues and general questions, they felt like, they just they're just on their own. They have nothing to do with the government. They have nothing to do with the Chinese embassy. So even if they have issues affecting maybe their papers or labor or police cases, they don't have to go to the embassy to tell the embassy to help them because they feel like they're actually on their own. So whatever goes wrong, they have to bear the consequences themselves. So they actually didn't feel so much part of the relationship because Maybe they, there was no support coming from the Chinese government. But 
looking at their relationship with, with Africans, they felt like, you know, it's a place where they want to do business, maybe not so much involved with the society, but just do their business. When they finish their shop, they go back home to their families. Next day, they do the same thing. And very few of them are op open up to maybe going out with some of the locals to maybe get a drink or something. But most of them, they just prefer to stay all by themselves. Wow. Uh, Dr. Um, I think that's really, that's really interesting. Could you share a little bit about some interesting interactions that you witnessed between the Chinese traders and the Botswana customers? Just a few other stories. Okay, yeah, I guess uh, my story, it was quite interesting because I ended up not feeling the time that I spent there because I spent like some hours, but because of the, the way they spoke and all that, I felt so relaxed and I had to laugh a lot, <laughs> yeah. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I, there was what I think, let me just pick two key stories that I felt quite interesting. One was um, about um, language. There was this customer that came into the shop. You know, most of these Chinese shops, they always have these big shops and all that. And then they have this uh, protector that when you go out of the shop, if you're holding something, it's kind of like a lamp and all that tells you you're holding something and you've not paid for. So you have to go back. So there was those guys that came into the shop. There was this Chinese man there. <laughs> they kind of like passed and uh, it sounded, but they felt like it wasn't for them. But I think they were having something in their pocket when they wanted to go out with it. They wanted to take something. So this is the, the, the Chinese man just really said, say saying things in Siswana. He was like, Takwan, Takwan. That's like, come here, come here. So they were really curious, like, what's he saying? Can he speak Siswana? And he said, sorry, he said, you no pay. You know, they also make this PG nice form and all that. So <laughs> the guys were actually surprised, like, wow. <laughs> You're speaking Sisona to me, and they were able to, you know, then the guys had to return it and really pay back and all that. Then the other instance I had was uh, a staff, she wanted a day off. Normally, um, workers in the show are entitled to days off. Maybe after some period of time, you have to give them some days off, maybe to do one or two things and all that. But this Chinese man, he was reluctant to let his staff go and leave. He felt like the, the lady was always requesting for leave every time, like a day off, a day off. So he's trying to tell her that, no, no, no day off, no day off, you have to work. But the lady can say, me, I go, <laughs> you know. Funny enough, the way they respond back to the Chinese, when they speak uh, English in a different way, the customers end up, or the staff end up saying the same thing like them. And you tell them, you're speaking some form of pidgin. And they're like, no, I speak good English. And so listen to yourself. You know, you know, go, me, come, you know, have <laughs> a funny way of talking and, you know, they reduce vocabulary grammar and all that, transferring the Chinese grammar into the English grammar. And, uh, yeah, I found that quite interesting. That, that is really fascinating. Dang. Um, <laughs> well, is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, I just hope that there will be more studies on language issues and um, how to improve China-African relations through um, more language opportunities. This was something that I've always wanted to see how it would you know, create more awareness and more concentration and see how even government-to-government -government can implement, apart from having cultural institutes in, in, in Africa, there's need to also have language centers where 
or resource materials, multilingual materials where people can get to um, have this language, these African languages together with Chinese and English in a material. I've been able, not just to Africans, but also to the Chinese population, in order for them to have uh, a background or a little knowledge about African languages or African culture before they come in. Well, I, I'm I'm sure you will you will help lead that that discussion. Yeah, so. We're gonna we're gonna move on to recommendations. Uh, Antonia, you're our guest, so would you like to start and recommend something for our listeners of of interest? Yeah, I think uh, well, knowledge is power. So I guess people need to know more about what's going on here, because I um, most people are not so. Uh, gets used to information, but I guess more information people get to know what's happening out there and more about China-African relations and more so about what's happening out there in the world. So, well, I say I have more general recommendations. Oh, yeah. That's A-okay. Uh, Dr. Kalu, what about you? So, I'm actually going to, my recommendation, unfortunately, is uh, geographically biased. And um, as for people that are in the D.C. area, it's a play at Woolly Mammoth called We Are Proud to Present, um, and that's the shortened version. The long version of the name is, oh heavens, it's, I think we are proud to present a presentation about the Herero of Namibia, formerly known as Southwest Africa, from the German Sudwest Africa between the years 1884 and, 1980, and 1915. It is, it is a play about German genocide that's what they that I, that wasn't my choice of word. It was the, the the word chosen by the playwright of the Herero Nama people of Namida. It's a little bit about that, but also a little bit about um, how history is told and how I guess in some ways American culture addresses race relations. But I thought it was very fascinating. The first section of the play is just a historical um, rendition of the events that took place in in Namibia and how the Germans exterminated 81% of the Herero population and moved them off of the lands and in the desert up until, well, 1915 when the British came and took control. In some ways that incident's been referred to as the rehearsal for um, the Holocaust. That's not my perspective, that's how some people have referred to it, but it's it's a very interesting topic that's not not as often discussed as it should be. So that's my recommendation. I, on the other hand, I'm going to recommend stuff that's not at all like that. I'm going to recommend um, the Think Africa Press podcast. Just, I think they have two episodes as of this recording. And they're really cool and really professional. And I think they're all British. So they have that smooth British delivery that I wish I had, but I don't. And they kind of put a bunch of different um, topics in, in each of their podcasts. I think they usually go with like three topics per recording. They've only had two so far, but I've really enjoyed them. And if, and if you like kind of broader um, Africa-related Africa stuff, and, and they, you know, they, record, they record things of people on the ground, I, I think they're, they're really, really good podcasts, something I'm, I'm listening to. They're, they're on my rotation. You guys heard about the U.S. ambassador speaking a little bit of pidgin English in that uh, radio show in in Abuja. Oh, 
That that's that was that was so switching. Wow. Yeah, I, it's it's a fun it's a funny clip on, on the on the BBC. Yeah, and, and I think I heard something about that, but I was not distracted. I think I. I love it because he, like he speaks it as like a formal U.S. official, <laughs> so it's very dry. <laughs> so it's like a real like dry bureaucratic <laughs> pigeon, which is really funny to hear. And, um, Wow. And then the other recommendation is, if if you like basketball at all, this this weekend is NBA All Star Weekend, and John Wall of the Washington Wizards won Dunker of the Night for the dunk contest with this tremendous, tremendous dunk that I just recommend watching John Wall dunk and knowing about the glory of the Washington Wizards. We're actually a, a very terrible, well, a mediocre basketball team, but I like when, when we do well. So that John Wall dunk, Saturday night, watch it if you like basketball. It's really, really awesome. Yeah, that's, that's sort of it. Well, uh, before we sign off, Antonia, how do people find you on the interwebs? Do you have a, a website or a Twitter account that you would like to share with us? Uh, I used to be on Twitter, but I don't think right now I'm following it off. So, well, I'm just on Skype, and um, my Skype account is Antonia.Akideno, my name and my surname, and uh, Gmail, Antonia.Akideno at gmail.com. So, I guess that's the. And if, if you yeah. want to help set up some sort of language centers or whatever, email her or talk to her on Skype, or <laughs> dear listeners, because she. She just gave you personal information. Very brave of you. It's okay. We don't have that many listeners, so don't don't, don't worry about it. Um, uh, Dr. Kalu, how do people find you? I am on the interwebs um, at and I blog at ncamkalu.wordpress.com and also at calriesrice.blogspot.com, and I can be found on Twitter at ncamekalu. That is fantastic. What did you tweet about this past week? I can't remember. <laughs> I think uh, news. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. I, um, uh, I can be found on uh, cowriesrice.blogspot.com. My Twitter handle is at Winslow underscore R. Uh, I was a little ill this week, so I did not actually tweet as much as I should have. Um, so I, I don't really know what, what was going on, unfortunately. But I, Dr. Kalu, you know, during your move, you're still going to be on the Twitter sphere and you're still going to be blogging and, and podcasting, right? Um, to some degree, as you can already see, my blogging has kind of dropped off a little bit. Um, that will still be accessible and I'll try to keep churning some information out. Um, but there might be some, some lags. And I apologize in advance that, that's, and present because that, it's present happening. <laughs> that's that, that's completely, completely understandable. Well, um, you know, that's about it for today's episode. We would like to thank um, An Antonia for, for joining us this morning. Uh, well, this morning. It's morning our time, evening yeah, your like time. <laughs> evening your time. I'm sorry yeah. I'm keeping you from, a, I'm sure, a very romantic meal. Are you staying in a hotel or are you staying? No, we're staying at home. Oh. At apartment at home. Oh, okay, well. My husband is in Bahrain, so we're at home. Yeah, and, and yeah, it's, uh, Bahrain is, I, what, eight hours? No, nine hours? It's, it's a few hours ahead, but 
Yeah, yeah. like seven now. Yeah, eight, 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 eight hours ahead. So, and, and thank you so much for, for cutting into that valuable time. Um, we would like to thank African Development Jobs and the Africa Daily. Uh, this podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. No word back from BlackBerry, so I'm, I'm shrugging right now. Uh, we'll, keep, we'll keep working with them. And um, we, we hope to hit up more media platforms in the future. We'd also like to thank Mighty Mike of Pulse Recordings for composing the theme song. And thank you, dear listener, for giving us your time. Take care. Take care.